welcome to episode 262 of Texting. In this very technically oriented show, I'm talking to Rob Walling and Derek Reimer from Drip about the innards of the Drip tech stack. Hey guys, how you doing? Hey Justin, doing well. Yeah, doing good. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, so um, well, this is this is a, an impro- a very impromptu texting show, and um, it came about because, as many listeners will know, I've been working on a product called Disco with um, Lance and Joe, Lance um, Armstrong. No, not Lance Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jones. <laughs> Lance Jones and Joanna Weeb, and uh, we're we're making a, a, a widget um, that goes on people's websites. And you guys from Drip make a widget that goes on people's websites. And I know that you've been tremendously successful with your widget. So I just wanted to be very selfish and pick your brains about your um, technical infrastructure, really, and, you know, how you put the whole thing together. So, um, but before we get into that, uh, Derek, um, let, I'd really be interested to just uh, hear a little bit about yourself and how you ended up working with, with Rob. Sure. So, um I originally met Rob, I think it was about four years ago. Um, Rob was a judge at a local tech competition in Fresno. And I live just about 30 miles south of Fresno. So I'm in, in town often. And, yeah. um, and so Rob was a judge and I was a competitor. And um, I ended up winning the competition that year. And so, you know, I had the chance to um, have several conversations with Rob and we just kind of kept in touch. And um, a couple of years later, I was at a point where I was either going to start taking on some consulting clients or, or possibly start looking for, um, for a place to work. And that's when Rob had a need for somebody to help manage Hittail. So that's kind of how I got started uh, working with Rob. So do you um, also have an entrepreneurial streak? I do. Yeah. I, um, it, it was kind of the, the entrepreneurial aspect that drew me into the software industry. Um, you know, the opportunity to build apps and market them as products. And I was actually, I have been kind of a student of Rob's. Um, you know, I read his book before I actually met him and <laughs> kind of had come across his blog. So it was really cool to, to cool. be able to meet him in person, you know, but um, yeah, that's kind of what drew me into the software industry in general. Have you dabbled with building your own products or your own things in the past? I have. Yeah. I, um, it was through this, this coding competition is where I first built like a full scale application and, and I actually did launch it. The first product I made was a, um, a tool for creating user documentation, uh, for software products. And I worked on that for probably about a year at that point I was in college. So it was just kind of a, um, something I was dabbling with, um, Interesting. What was the what was the kind of once you actually got to speak to Rob about it and probably got a good tear down? What was the takeaway of all your work on that? Um, I mean, Rob gave me a lot of advice over the over the year that I was working on it, and you know, I, that was my first product. So of course, I started out not validating the idea at all. <laughs> you know, it was kind of <laughs> I thought, hey, it's something I I could see people using. I could certainly use it. So you know, why not turn it into a product? So I kind of got started off on the wrong foot, I guess you could say, with that with that project. But um, you know, um, I learned a lot in the so, process of trying to market. So that's interesting. So working behind the scenes with Rob, as you have been for well, you said what? Uh, it's over a year at this stage on Drip. Yeah, it's almost almost two years now. If you could kind of define any key takeaways about the kind of building a business in your in your own mind, you know what 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 are the key takeaways that you would use 
moving forward if you were going to make your own new product? I mean, definitely validating your market first. I mean, that's right. that's step one, number one, that most of us miss, I guess. Most of us developers who, who want to actually turn something into a real business. And so it was, yeah, it's been a really great experience working on Drip. And, you know, Rob and I talked about talked about drip just when it was at the idea phase and he hadn't even spoken to to other people about it necessarily and so i got to watch how that process went the process of getting you know the 17 um people interested and not writing any code until we were sure people were interested and all that kind of thing so huh okay well i guess um maybe just before we start getting into the technical stuff so as i said previously this this is going to be a pretty technical a discussion because I'm just trying to kind of really steal as much as I can from you guys uh, because you've already you've already been there and done it. But maybe just before we get into that, Rob, if you could give just a very quick, I know you're probably sick of doing this, but a real quick over, overview of, of what Drip is for any listeners who may not know. Yeah, sure. Uh, Drip is, it's email marketing software. And the original idea was that it was a super simple way for people selling software, SaaS apps, and selling info products, super simple way for them to get a nice little widget on their website to start collecting emails, to get that widget on every page of their website, and then to get just a short five-day email course live. And so we, we have a heavy concierge service that we do for free where we help people compile a five-day course. And the widget is just a little snippet of JavaScript that you install on the footer of, uh, or really anywhere on every page of your site. Now, the, the apps evolved it's much more um, much more full featured than that now. We actually have automation rules, so we've become kind of a marketing automation solution where you can move people in and out of lists based on their behavior, based on what they click, based on an huh. event you throw in the app. So if they create a new project in your app, you can then move them into the "Hey, here's how to use a project" list. So that's been our most recent push. But um, my guess is what you want to you know mine out of out of Derek because what he spent the last eighteen months cranking on is you know is that uh, well he spent eighteen months cranking on everything but a big you know big piece of that early on was is our little pop up widget. Well, I'm I'm really interested in talking about that, but before we get into that, I'd like to be I'm interested to hear what are all of the tech pieces like? What's the kind of architectural overview of the Drip product? Sure. So. Um, Drip is a Rails 3 application, um, and it runs on um, Amazon Web Services, EC2 boxes. We have, I think, three, four boxes right now. We have a database server, a couple job servers, and our front-end web server. Um, We do a lot of background processing, so we rely heavily on um, some, some nice background job libraries in Ruby, and uh, we do have um, we have a little bit of um, Node.js mixed in there. We have a Node app that handles some of our um, click tracking and things. And um, let's see, where our data is stored in Postgres, and we use Redis as kind of a buffer between the Postgres database and data coming into the system. So, so conceptually, you have a cloud, and you have um, the the cloud basically serves out the widget to clients. And in the back, the back end of the cloud, you have email processing systems. And um, is there anything I'm missing? Like just as just as as a basic conceptual concept of this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's a good way to visualize it. So then, so then, how do you just just talk about the email stuff right now? I mean, I've tried I've tried to do. I mean, I've been 
have been successful in the past, but it's it wasn't always the smartest or necessarily the most elegant solution. But I'm interested interested to hear like how you've kind of architected the email stuff, how you're dealing with scheduling and queuing and all that type of thing. Sure. So we from the get go, we knew we didn't want to, at least in the early stage, we didn't want to try to build our our own infrastructure for actually um, sending the email to um, email service providers, you know, so we, that would be a nightmare to, <laughs> to manage. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of work involved with that, you know, getting on phone calls with email service providers and making sure you're not blacklisted and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So we, we rely heavily on a couple different, um, providers, Mailgun and Mandrel. Um, and What's Man- what does Mandrel do? Uh, very similar to Mailgun and Postmark and any of those, um, kind of send email via an API service. So yeah, mail mailgun's great because um, it allows incoming email and outgoing email. So and it just it just passes the email really nicely for you when you get events and right. you can hook it into your API. That's very nice. Yeah. Mandrel Mandrel is the equivalent of Mailgun, but it's uh, run by MailChimp. It's on their infrastructure. I see. And it's, I see. it's also since we we run a lot of volume through both of them, uh, it's about a I think it's about a third or a quarter of the price of Mailgun. It's quite a bit cheaper. That's interesting. Do you find different bounce rates based on whether you're using Mandrel or Mailgun? No, there. I mean, Derek, you can say what you've seen, but uh, almost virtually equivalent. And we, I send across post, uh, postmark, Mandrel, Mailgun, and then you know, even through Mailchimp, I still have one Mailchimp account. Um, I have seen negligible differences across those four. Uh, Derek, yeah. I don't know if you've seen other. How are you splitting that up? I mean, is that just you know, you randomly send an email from one guy, and then the next time you randomly send an email for another, or is it different subsections of the system? That one, you know, one subsection is calling Mandrel, one subsection is calling Mailgun. Yeah, we, we do have it split. Like at, at the core campaign emails, you know, the autoresponder sequences and drip um, go kind of round robin style, and we have you know, interesting. So we have the two platforms, and then across those platforms, we have multiple sending domains because the sending domains is what your reputation is tied to. So if we had somebody send, you know, by chance send a spammy broadcast email to you know, 50,000 people that would get dispersed across our sending domains so that, you know, one domain wouldn't get completely blacklisted. And so, so if you're sending from both of these people, you're obviously checking clicks in the email. So somehow you have to get that click data back into your central database. Yes. How does that work from like multiple different providers? So fortunately, I mean, that was one thing we looked at when we were choosing our providers is do they have a nice API for communicating that data back to us? So and both um, Mailgun and Mandrel have webhooks. So, um, you know, we just give them our endpoint that we want to receive all that data at. And they just every time something's clicked or open, they'll send us um, they'll send us that data. And actually, we've recently implement our own click tracking because um, with our automation engine, we want to be able to trigger certain things on when people click a link in an email and we needed more control over the, the infrastructure side of that. So that's actually what our Node.js, Node.js app does is um, handles all the inbound um, redirecting of um, clicking oh. uh, click links. Cool. Well, um, what sort of process do you guys use I mean, the, the actual drip stuff itself, like that's, I mean, did you, I get, I, did you write that from the ground up? Um, and what, what kind of, I don't know, uh, pattern or algorithm are you using? How's that working? 
By drip stuff, do you mean like the autoresponder campaigns? Yeah, basically like, you know, some some system that kind of checks that like, okay, I've sent this email, now I'm going to send this email exactly this amount of time later. Right. And just make sure, you know, obviously how does it make sure that it's not sending like duplicate emails, that it's sending it on time, scheduling, all that stuff? Yeah, that's that has been a, a big, that's a major piece of our infrastructure is just yeah. dealing with autoresponder campaigns, making sure timing works correctly. Um, so we have, it's a combination of, um, scheduled jobs, basically cron jobs that run, um, very frequently and constantly pull the system to see, um, you know, who in the next upcoming interval of time needs to be receiving a, a their next campaign email. And then that gets queued up and put into a, a delivery queue. And then another, what, what delivery queue are you using? Um, that's actually, it's in the database itself. So we'll, Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll put an entry in there, and then it'll get swept up by another um, scheduled process that looks to see, okay, here we have a new delivery. This needs to be rendered, and then it takes their, you know, all the subscribers' information, their email address, and any merge tags that they have, and it compiles the email for them. And, and it like fl- flags it as done kind of thing. Right. So it's kind of has a state machine attached to it, you know, and, and so then it's at the state of ready to be sent and it may have a, a time that it needs to be sent at sometime in the future, or it may be immediately. And that get, gets picked up by the deliver by the, our sending job basically that then hands it off to. So wh- when you say jobs, do you mean like, do, do you have, do you use job queues like Beanstalk D or rabbit? MQ or anything like that? Yeah, I think, um, well, we use a, a library called Sidekick that's backed by Redis. Um, mm. And it's a, it's a Ruby library. And so basically we can write, um, we can push jobs onto that um, queue. So anytime a job gets pushed onto our, our Redis queue, it's all stored in memory. So it's super fast. You know, we'll push a job onto there with certain data. And then we can attach, uh, we have worker classes written in Ruby that will take that data and process them um, asynchronously. So a, a lot of our um, cron jobs and things that run regularly will batch up a bunch of records and push them all onto the onto the job queue to be processed async. Nice. And what so the servers you, you mentioned the server that you said you had four servers. Yes. And um, like are, are you running on Amazon? Yes. Rackspace? Yes, all Amazon. So so what size servers are they? So right now we have we have a massive box for our database. Um, okay. And so what? Just one database box then? So you're not right. You're not like um, uh, doing mo- any master slave situation. Right. Yeah. Currently, it's quite, one. It's quite expensive. <laughs> that's quite the, expensive. that's the painful part of it. Yeah. It's it's what we need to in you know in order to expand well and not have to migrate the database to another box in in a few months, but. It's definitely the most expensive part of our infrastructure. What kind of, I mean, what kind of price, if you don't mind, yeah. what, what kind of price, the size and stuff? It's 68 gigs of RAM. And so it's, it's, it's so we can have the entire database in RAM, in memory at all times. And it's, oh, uh, wow. yeah, it's 750 bucks a month just for the database box. That's if you don't do a reserved instance with a reserved instance. I think it's about 270, 280. So, but, but you have to, with the reserved, you pay up front, right? And then you reserve it for a year. Yeah, and so it it kind of assuming that we actually that costs, a, that costs a crap load up front. Wow, it's a lot. Yeah, I, what is it, fifteen hundred or two grand up front, and then it's so much a month. So it, it's not the end of the world. And and at the even at the scale we're at now, it's it's totally doable. But it's but it's a non trivial. You know, it's not a shared hosting account anymore. Like we have 
hundreds and hundreds of dollars. If we weren't doing reserved instances, we'd be in into you know maybe thousand well probably like twelve fourteen hundred bucks a month in hosting. But since we do reserved instances, I think it's about a quarter of that. We're probably between three and five hundred bucks a month. What about um? So every every time the widget is served, do you log that? We do. Yeah. So we have we have uh, just to give you an idea of the magnitude. Right now, we're our background processing library, um, which basically takes every single time of a first time visitor comes to one of our customers website, we log that analytics data, every time a widget's opened or closed or submitted, each of those gets a, an individual record. And we're processing around two to 300,000 um, jobs of that kind of day. Okay, so, and so what I'm one thing I'm interested to know is, when that widget opens, that like th- th- this is what I'm kind of imagining. Tell me how close my ima- my imaginings are to the reality of what you guys are doing. The widget opens on someone's page. Um, it does some kind of AJAX call back home, and then the AJAX call hits an endpoint, which I'm guessing inserts into a job queue, and then the job queue goes through them and then puts it in the database. Or I mean, how does how does that all hang together? Yep, you nailed it. That's exactly that's exactly how it works, and so that that keeps it so that um, you know every single one of those we could get fifty in a second. They all get pushed immediately into Redis, and then the database will eventually get them in. It's going to catch up, like right. it, it could even catch up by the end of the you know by tomorrow kind of thing. Exactly, yeah. So how 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 many can it process a second the job queue coming in? Um, so we haven't. I don't think we've gotten close to pushing the limits of. Of Sidekick, which is the library that we use. Um, I right now we're multiple a second, and I've seen um, you know posts from the creator of the library and you know different people using it heavily that have processed as many as ten to twenty thousand a second um, jobs. Interesting. So yeah. I think we we have a lot of capacity, and kind of the scaling strategy for that is to add more. Um, more servers. So right now we have two job servers that run run this sidekick process that spawns up a bunch of threads and they're constantly pulling the queue and pulling jobs off. So to scale that out, you just keep adding more job servers. So you're not doing any elastic scaling like for, for bursts or anything like that in terms of spinning up new servers? Um, we haven't had the need to, to go that far just yet. Yeah, I believe that uh, it's uh, 37 signals say, you know, don't do that. Just just get a bigger server. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the Rails way, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's all sounded very cool. So, um, when you serve the widget, so okay, so just talking a little bit more about the actual widget that gets served to the page. Now, each each customer can customize in some way what that widget looks like, what the text is on it. Right. And I don't know if they can customize anything else. Um, and obviously, the widget has an ID, like. Do you serve the widget out as one piece of JavaScript, or does it get served out as a piece of JavaScript that then pulls up, pulls down other things like CSS? Yeah, so um, we have our our script that everyone installs, all the customers install on their site. It works very similar to to Google Analytics or any of those other um, you know snippet providers. So it that asynchronously loads our client script. And then that client script is responsible for calling back out to our service and, um, you know, asking what forms 
what forms do we need to render? Uh, what's the visitor's data and any other data we need to send down? And so that sends, um, we render on, on our side, we render the HTML for the form itself, and we send a, a chunk of CSS to accompany it. And that as a separate network call or no, that's all, that's all bundled up in one in the, in the first, in just the basic JavaScript. Yeah. So the, there's the, the one loading of the client script and the client script makes one call out to get all the configuration data. So, so two, two network pulls for every person who looks, there's two pulls from somewhere. Right. And are you serving that via a CDN or are you, is that all coming from your server? So it's all coming from our server. We have um, every, everybody gets a unique um, URL for their, their client JavaScript. So, you know, it'll be something like tag.getdrip.com slash account ID.js. So right now that just, that account ID.js just points to a static JavaScript file. Uh, the one that's responsible for making the second network call. Um, but that kind of, by inserting the account ID in there, it gives us the option at some point to pre-cache data and send more data in the first call, you know, um, it kind of gives us that option. But basically that all comes off of our server and that could be thrown, you know, that's the same for everybody. So it could be thrown on a CDN um, if performance was an issue. Yeah, so that's that's what I was thinking of doing. I was thinking of because I'd noticed that you had, you know, obviously look, digging into what you were doing. I'd noticed that you had the ID in the file name or or some yes. unique client reference in the file name. So what I was thinking of doing was um, uh, including everything in one JavaScript file, inc- including the CSS and and just and the HTML and just kind of writing it into the DOM, and it's going to have all the configuration variables, and then using uh, Max CDN or something like that to just pass, pass that round so that it would be even faster for other people on the other side of the country. It's, it's pretty cheap, Max CDN. Right. And um, so I was just wondering if that, you know, if that was a bad idea or not, really. <laughs> I think that's a, no, I think it's a good idea. And I think it's something that we were open to that kind of thing as well. Um, it's kind of been a, a case of not wanting to prematurely scale. And I've actually yeah, been yeah. pleasantly surprised that, um, you know, everything seems to be serving up quickly and, um, you know, we haven't had a whole lot of issues with that just yet, but. Well, so what, what, I mean, has the server ever gone down? Um, it's never gone down from load. It's. Yeah, but I mean, has it gone down from like Amazon just like not working or something? No, no, it hasn't. Oh, because I'd be interested to know like what, you know, how the, how it responds from a customer's perspective, not, not one of your customers, but like a page that the widget's been served on. You know what happens if the server's down? Does it just does the asynchronous JavaScript just deal with it, and it doesn't? It just means it doesn't interfere with the web page in any way. Yeah, it does. I mean, I'm I'm not sure. Some browsers may show a you know the spinner on the icon or whatever. Oh um, yeah, yeah. But I, it shouldn't impact the actual page load performance since it is async. That all sounds very good. Well, are there any questions um, that I should have asked that I haven't asked? I don't know. I mean. If you might, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell tell me a little bit more about the the widget that you guys are implementing? Yeah, sure. Uh, basically, um, we're we're doing a discount a discount widget. Mm-hmm. So um, what happens is a user will be able to uh, go to a website, and our widget will pop up, and then the widget will offer you a discount for filling in a survey. I see. 
and that's that's it really so we're not so the the great news is i don't have the whole email part of what you've got right right <laughs> but i think pretty much everything else i do have right and are I, you um, well ask more questions but i already have i have a couple notes here of things that you may want to think about that we've run into well okay well, i do have one thing how about security like in terms of um I don't know, just, just what's happening on the page. Like, was, is there any, be- no, no, security, that's the wrong word. Is there any best practices that you've kind of looked up about serving out widgets? <laughs> I don't know whether there's like a, like some website, the best practices of serving widgets. There actually is. So there's a great book um, by the guys who made uh, Discuss, you know, the embedded comment. Oh, right, widget. right, yeah. I think it's called third-party JavaScript or something like mm. that. Um, and I checked that book out early on because they talk they talk all about how to be defensive with your CSS and the best ways to, you know, style things so that the user's style sheets won't clobber what you're trying to show on the page. Um, different methods of using iframes versus um, injecting into the DOM and there's just all kinds of goodies in that book. Um, how about cookies? Well, what's been your experience with with actually tracking users and successfully tracking users? Are you, for example, setting a third-party cookie on your servers or are you setting a cookie on the page that the widget served on? Um, so we, we can do both. Um, by default, we store the data um, just as a regular, as a regular cookie, not as a third party. Um, so that means, so, so that means you're storing it essentially on the server on the page that you visited. Right. So it's on the, it's on the domain of yeah. whatever, wherever the widget is installed so that, yeah as users are hopping around um, the site, it'll follow them around. Um, But not from one site to another. Right. And so we actually do, we have the option to enable a third party cookie that will basically just store their, um, their visitor ID, which is a big GUID um, in a third party cookie so that they can, because we have some people who, you know, want it across subdomains or want it on two of their blogs and they want, they want us to see it as one site. So um, we have that option, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of browser security plugins that will um, throw up warnings if third-party cookies are set. And there's probably some laws in some parts of the world that prohibit them. So they're, they're a little bit dicey, I think. But yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit of a painful scenario, but it's kind of like, it's really useful for your customers, you know, and for right. obviously our, our customers as well. Right. So it's a shame that it's, it's so, it's such a kind of blocked thing, but I, I know why it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry, Rob. So you, you had some notes. Oh yeah. I was going to bring up the book that Derek read early on with the defensive CSS. That was one thing. Um, the other thing is, you know, when you're building a widget like this, and this is purely from conversations, uh, with Derek, I wouldn't have thought of it up front, but the easy way is to just pull, you know, require jQuery and pull that in and make, uh, make your widget pop up using jQuery. But that's not, that's not going to scale, right? Because if you're installed on 100, 500, 1,000 different websites, people are already going to have jQuery and you don't want to pull a new version. They may have an older version that has doesn't have some of the features you want. It becomes a real issue. So as an example, our widget does not use jQuery at all, yeah, even no, though it animates. I, yeah, I, I was thinking that. And um, yeah, so uh, w- what my approach is, what I've done so far is the first thing I've done is like I've injected a, basically a, re- a reset CSS for my div that I'm inserting on the page. So it's just like, it obliterates, it obliterates any, any CSS properties that are there. 
and it's been really painful then to actually make it look like anything <laughs> but but what it means is is that you know hopefully when it goes on other sites because i already was really strict about trying to ruin the css in the first place um it it should in theory work across those other sites i don't know we'll see right. <laughs> i doubt it's going to work as well as your guys's but uh, uh you know that's what bug fixing's for right and do you have i mean you have animations in there that that require javascript and are you, you well, coding I, I had, from scratch no yeah yes uh yes coding them from scratch i had originally put them all in, using jquery and then kind of had that same thought so i was like okay how many actual jquery calls do i use so i just re-implemented the ones that i use um but i'm not doing any animation actually using jquery it's all css3 animations so if it, if if they don't if their browser doesn't have the capability of playing the CS, css3 uh, animations it's just going to degrade to just like a you know an open and a close rather than a slided open and close that's cool yeah that's exactly what we do as well and it's nice. it's been so nice not having to you know, have those tight loops in your JavaScript that try to animate things. <laughs> right, right. And, yeah. you know, if someone's using IE7 or something and they don't get to see the nice effect, well... Well, that is interesting. Oh well. Like, what, what browsers <laughs> do you do you support on your widget? Like, how, how far back do you take it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> God, off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember how far back on IE we go. We, we, I- try, we basically try to troubleshoot anything someone sends us unless it's ridiculous like ie7 is too far i think we fixed something for ie8 once yeah. and it was because we could right we looked and we yeah. f- we found the bug and we were able to reproduce it because we have a server that runs windows and you can emulate ie8 and then it was in stack overflow how to fix this so we could but if we had spent an hour or two and just couldn't fix it um then what I I'm delegated to going to Google and saying what are browser market shares today, and then I will literally like anything that's less than one percent market share. If it's going to take a long time, we we just won't support it. So it really is a case by case basis uh, with issues. Luckily, we've maybe had you know in the in the you know what eighteen months since we've been working on this. I guess about a year of people have been using it actively. I think we've maybe had five like like issues and almost all of there was one firefox and i think the other three or four were different versions of ie that were doing weird stuff i don't think we've had anything chrome or safari no by memory yeah huh yeah i was thinking i was thinking i ate like but anything older no no you know i just wasn't gonna yeah support it but i mean like so i mean the phase that we're at is is you know like i'm i only get about 10 hours a week to work on this it sounds like you guys have put in a lot of time and effort um, but I think we're, we're going to be just launching to very, very early beta testers, you know, within the next four weeks or something, awesome. but, but I don't think it's going to be the scaled version that you described. Um, but hopefully it'll work for three people or so. <laughs> More than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is interesting, Rob, like without having Jason on the line, you know, there's, <laughs> there's not, there's actually some dead air at some, yeah, some point. Jason just fills up the <laughs> air, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be a long show. I mean, doesn't we texting doesn't have to be a two hour show? Sure, right? Sure, you know, it could it could be a short one, like a. If you want me to start asking, because I'm see, I'm curious. Like you 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 connected with with Joanna and Lance, and what is it that what is it that excites you about the project? Like, what do you, what, what really ignited you and made you think, wow, I really want to do this? Oh, crap. Uh, an important call's come in, which I really have to take. Um, so sorry about this. I'm just going to be back in a couple of minutes. It's a trip to go back and talk about all the, the tech side of it, isn't it? Because it yeah. can be for granted now, right, of, of what you built and what, yeah. what 
have, but it's like you get to a so it is a it's a big app now and, and our infrastructure is not trivial, you know. It is, yeah. I thought I was thinking about all the war stories I could bring up. Yeah. Uh, you know. Right. Uh, all the time all the numerous different database things and email provider things. Right, but the the trip is that when we started off we were on, you know, tiny little Everything was on one box, if I recall. It's tiny. And then yeah. you start hitting performance issues. And it's like, okay, what do we need to move off? What do we need to optimize? What do we need to cache? And one by one, I mean, there were only a few, I mean, there was one week that was painful because the database was having issues. And then there were a couple other maybe two day periods where we had, you know, kind right. of performance issues. But realistically, I, I, you, can, you can see how you could easily premature scale premature yeah. scale things and i d- until the last round i don't think we've prematurely scaled anything now yeah. the only thing that's prematurely scaled now i think is the database is beefier than it needs to be right yeah. yeah and what's funny is a lot of time you know a lot of most apps even even big ones don't get to the scaling needs we've had so we like have actually had to scale it <laughs> which is something yeah, that's that right. Because you, know. you can have, yeah, if you look at a normal SaaS app that's just doing basic CRUD and doesn't have all the real-time callbacks, doesn't get that, you know, like you were saying, 30, 50 inserts per second. If yeah. you don't have that that widget that's on someone's website with the callbacks, you this could this could scale a really, really big app, right, oh, yeah. without that load. Yeah, we, we have a crazy number of moving parts. Like I was thinking as you were describing Sidekick and, and uh, what is it, Redis, and then... There's the database on the back end, and then there's the email sending engine, and we call out to the APIs. I mean, we really do have a lot of things that, a lot of points of failure, frankly. You know, any of those could fail. Um, and knock on, and each of them has failed at one point or another, right? Remember, like, at one point, was it Sidekick just stopped responding at one point? You had to spin yeah. it, you know? So there's things like that that happen, but um, I think overall we have enough monitoring in place now. Yeah, our monitors actually just saved us um, a couple of days ago. I was just... It, yeah. was like, it was in the evening. I was sitting there working on something and I got, you probably saw it too, the pingdom yeah. notification. I, I texted like, huh. you. Maybe you did text me. And I was like, huh, that's weird. And I logged in and sure enough, Sidekick had eaten up all the RAM, like something was just leaking memory. And, and I just rolled it and it was it caught up right away. So without that, it would have been another one of those wake up in the morning and there's a million jobs in the queue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm so. glad we, we that happened once. I'm going to, Hopefully it never happens again. You know, that's kind of what we put in place, I think, to combat that. Sorry about that, guys. Nice. That sounded fun. <laughs> well, I, I recorded that whole thing, so I'll have a listen back to it and see what, what you guys said. Yeah, well, we could hear you in the background, though, so you may want to cut out oh, parts okay, yeah, of it. Good yeah, point. yeah. All right, all right. Well, so you had just said, you just said what attracted me to this project. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what attracted to me was I had worked on Plugio and uh, as you know, I've had a successful exit with Plugio and sold it, right. built that whole business and done the whole thing single-handed. And uh, it's, you know, I'm pretty confident in my tech side, but the marketing side, um, not so much. So, you know, Lance and Joanna, who are basically top of their field in marketing, um, and well, Lance is top of his field in conversion and Joanna's top of her field in marketing. So that's that's just amazing. I mean, that's like an absolute head start. So, you know, when I I had I had actually decided once finishing Bluggeo that I wanted to do an, another side project, and I came up with a little kind of concept, a little bit like that. Um, it was a widget based concept, and I was just going to ask people on the on their page like, 
are you what do you think of this page you know thumbs up or thumbs down and i just thought that could be some interesting analytical data that you could get from drive-by traffic and so i sent an email to rob saying what do you think of this and you said well it's a little bit like something lance and joanna are doing so I was like, do I really want to go into competition with Lance and Joanna? Right, right. I don't know. Um, so I thought, well, I'll just call them up just to see like how similar the products are, um, if they really are competing. And by the end of the discussion, we just decided, you know what? Like, you're good at tech. You're good at marketing. Let's just do this together. So uh, it's great. And I've, I, sa- I said this to Jason. It's funny because it doesn't feel like work for either of us. Like, I don't feel like I'm actually doing any work <laughs> and mm-hmm. they don't feel like they're doing any work. But if I was to do what they're doing, it would be like the most painful thing in the world. And I think that's vice versa as well. So so that's really why. And you guys are looking to go uh, with kind of early access in the next few weeks. And then a few weeks after, are you going to launch or what's, uh, what's your time frame? Well, so um, we're, we're expecting our baby boy in oh, that's right. like five weeks okay so ideally i would like to have just you know not not early launch but maybe a couple of people i mean is is it when you've just got two people doing beta testing is that is that early launch or is uh, that that's beta testing yeah i mean that's you can you can call it early access or or beta testing if they really are trying to work out bugs then you're still in beta yeah right yeah. early access is kind of okay we're pretty sure you know not all but 99 percent of the bugs are out and now we're just going to let people you know, actual customers who are going to pay us start coming in and trying to trying to work with them one on one. Yeah, well, so it'll it'll be a push to like get it actually properly saleable mm-hmm. within the next five weeks. But I I definitely think it would it would be for some early access customers like you described. I mean, maybe maybe there could be some. I mean, knowing Lance and Joanna, they probably will get people uh, to actually put their money where their mouth is, mm-hmm. even even when they're beta testing. So yeah, I would bet. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. Yeah, so. Anything else? Any more questions? No. <laughs> I think that's it. It's been, it's been fun. It's been fun, Justin, talking about the tech. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Derek, it's, it has been really nice. It's been really good. And honestly, um, a, actually a treasure trove of information there. So I think that kind of gives me a, a massive head start. And um, I'm going to be listening back and reviewing the show. Because cool. I'm sure I missed out, you know, some some of the specifics that you spoke of. But uh, yeah, yeah. The, 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 what was the name of that? Um, oh, Sidekick. Sidekick, yeah. Sidekick, yeah. Yeah. So things like that. I'll, I'll have another listen through and, and look at the core technology. And I may actually send you a few more emails if you don't mind. Yeah, feel free. I'm happy to share anything. All right. Well, um, Derek and uh, Rob, thanks so much for coming on texting and having this this kind of brief mini texting interview with me and uh it's uh, i love what you guys are doing at drip and it's been great to have you on the show sounds good thanks for having us man it was a pleasure thanks justin i guess this is the part where i say that's a wrap yeah well thank listen guys thanks so much i'm sorry about the phone call in the middle that sucks yeah no sweat no worries yeah. What were you What were you talking about? Kind of talking just about you know we haven't talked about this in a while, just the the architecture of it and and all the tech stuff. And early on, it's a really big consideration, and you talk through it and you agonize over it. And we installed everything on one box to start with, and then over time, you just you outgrow that. And we were just talking about how we've got we're it's a non trivial arrangement now, right? All the infrastructure and the architecture is complicated, but it didn't start that way. So you know, I. With with Digidoo, you know, we have kind of hundreds of servers that we manage. Oh wow, I didn't and, know that. Um, 
we we were managing them through our own kind of pull pull system where it was like pulling from the central cloud like configuration scripts and running scripts and stuff like that and it was it was really painful and we were having to ssh into all of them we had like this reverse tunnel system set up so we could you know ssh into any server id id so we've been looking for a way to uh really make that management much much better and um you've probably heard of puppet and chef have yep. you well, yeah we use we use puppet for uh for drip okay so puppet I, you know, I, I've, I've been doing a lot of research and getting into this and I found Puppet just ridiculously difficult to get started with, like yeah. so, so painful, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just like one of the most hideous, horrible things I've ever used. So that's just me. I mean, I don't want to offend anyone, but that's just me. So Chef, I thought was kind of interesting. There's also Ansible out there, but the one that I got into is SaltStack and I am blown away by SaltStack. It is fantastic. Um, SaltStack is an amazing way to administrate thousands of servers. Like with, so with one SaltStack node, you can not just theoretically, but practically administer five thousand servers. So wow. it's it's you know for 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 small for small infrastructures, it's great. And so just to give you like some just basic uh, overview of why SaltStack's so good. Yeah. So what they've done is the the SaltStack master basically works on a pub sub basis with each with each server that's on it. So the first thing that they wrote was just this way of basically you typing a command and it and it sends it down the wire and just runs that command on all of the servers, you know, instantly. So let's say you were going to do like touch forward slash temp forward slash hello world. You could just run that and then five seconds later, that hello world file is now on 5,000 servers, right? So that was the, the base. And, and by the way, the, the response comes straight back as well because it's using that really light pub sub uh, kind of networking stuff. It actually uses zero MQ as its transport system. So then, you know, that this thing's been in development for like three years, whatever. Then they basically built the kind of puppet style stateful um, management stuff. So you just, you just basically use YAML files and in the YAML files, you declare whether, you know, I don't know, Nginx is there, whether it should, it should be service, whether it should be running. You can tell it like what files to watch. And if any of those files are updated, it does a restart. And it's just like, I mean, it's taken me a day to basically get our first cloud, you know, our first cloud server completely replicated using this system. Nice. Yeah. So, it's been, been yeah. kind of a, I have a love hate relationship with it and we, <laughs> we don't use like for drip even, I mean, now we could probably start considering like the whole master slave whole puppet server that just orchestrates them kind of set up. But I think, we're still at the scale where I just want it to be like run a command, yeah. like kind of like yeah. my deployment script, run it and it runs on all. I don't have to set up this whole like dedicated server just to manage configuration, yeah. but getting standalone mode puppets was a pain in the neck to work. And then I don't know, the syntax kind of twists my brain around too. Yeah. Like it's kind of a mix between JavaScript and Ruby and well, I, would, <laughs> I would definitely recommend looking, um, looking into salt stack. Um, I mean, uh, I've actually found out about it by because I just stumbled on it on SmartBear blog. One of the developers there basically said, SaltStack, it's like Puppet, but it doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I love descriptions like that. 